I'm Tony Becker. Welcome to the second episode of Insurable Interest for Thursday, March 1st, 2018. interest is about how insurance is supposed to work. We don't presume any knowledge of the insurance industry. If you thought that a funny, entertaining, general audience podcast about insurance could not be done, I am here to prove you wrong. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, and all the places you usually find podcasts as far as I know. If you like the show, please share your review in the iTunes store. Those ratings really help us build our audience. This month's episode is about Ghostbusters, the original one from 1984. We'll see how, despite the unique nature of their work, they face some of the same issues that any startup business might face. And we'll see how the claims would have settled, assuming that they'd bought the coverage that they needed. If this is your first time tuning in, we do this every month. We pick a movie or a TV show and look at it from an insurance point of view. Insurance policies are legal contracts designed to prevent you from running out of money at the wrong time. Policy language is important, and sometimes exactly how that contract is written can make the difference. Later on in March, we'll be talking about double indemnity from 1944, and in April, we'll be talking about Twister from 1996. I'm working on lining up some cool interviews with folks from Joplin, Missouri, who dealt with the aftermath of the 2011 tornado that devastated that town. Before we get into Ghostbusters, I have a brief disclaimer. Information in this podcast is intended to give you an overview of certain policies, products, and terminology. Any reliance on any opinions, advice, or information presented will be at your sole risk. If you need advice about a particular issue, please contact your local independent insurance agent. And with that out of the way... I'll be honest, Ghostbusters was my first choice of a movie to start this podcast with, not Silver Streak like I did last month. But I wanted to do one other episode first just so I could get one under my belt and have some idea what I was doing. This movie is just one claim after another. Ghostbusters was one of the first movies I went to see without a parent. My cousin and I walked down to the theater, which fortunately for us was only about two blocks from his house. This was back in the days before the multiplex with 20 screens that you had to drive to. This 1984 classic stars Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, and Rick Moranis. Some extra actors we get as a special treat include William Atherton, David Margulies, and a young Reginald Vell Johnson, who we'll see again later in the year when we look at Die Hard around Christmas time. The script was written by Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, and Rick Moranis. Harold Ramis also wrote Groundhog Day, Stripes, Caddyshack, and Animal House. Dan Aykroyd wrote The Blues Brothers, and Rick Moranis had just come off his successes with SCTV and Strange Brew in Canada. There were a lot of on-location shots in New York City. It has a great soundtrack, including the very memorable theme song from Ray Parker Jr., plus the score by Elmer Bernstein. There's nothing wrong with the 2016 version of the Ghostbusters with the ladies, but this is the original, and this is the one I can quote from memory. 
There's nothing quite like when your five-year-old is looking around a new place and you ask him, where do you think those stairs go, buddy? And he says, they go up. If you haven't seen Ghostbusters from 1984, it's available to rent or buy from all the major services. There are links in the show notes. And the entire rest of this episode is a very long spoiler. I'm going to assume that you're broadly familiar with the story of Ghostbusters. Three paranormal investigator weirdos, Pete Venkman, Ray Stance, and Egon Spengler, get kicked out of Columbia University's psychology department and go into business for themselves as Ghostbusters. Hilarity and property damage ensue. But that's not where we start. We start at the main branch of the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue. The beautiful reading room shots were actually on location, and the stacks below with all the effects scenes were actually filmed in another library in Los Angeles. Alice the librarian is traumatized by a ghost in a dialogue-free opening scene that lasts almost three minutes. A lot of my favorite movies open with no dialogue, like Rio Bravo and Raiders of the Lost Ark. We'll come back to Alice the librarian in a moment. Peter Venkman, meanwhile, is harassing two students in a psychology experiment in different ways. A male student is being shocked periodically, while Venkman tries to make time with a pretty female student. Both of them have potential claims for harassment and mental anguish. If they wanted to bring legal action, I would think that the young man would have a better chance in court, based on legal standards of that time. It's much easier to bring a sexual harassment case today than it would have been in 1984. And frankly, it's much easier to bring it if you're an employee even today. But if she could get into a discovery phase and find a pattern in how Venkman had treated his female students, they might have a good failure-to-supervise case against the university. In fact, I would speculate that this pattern of behavior is probably what got Venkman and his friends booted out of the university. Venkman would likely be covered as an employee under the university's liability policies. Today, it's hard to imagine an educational institution that would not have an abuse and harassment endorsement added on to the general liability policy. Although the university might self-insure liability claims and maintain their own staff of litigators, Self-insurance is pretty common for large institutions for general liability, auto, and workers' comp claims. Let's go back to our friend Alice the librarian. Her ordeal isn't over after she's run away from the ghost. She's also subjected to Venkman's funny but fairly objectionable questioning. Venkman is not an MD, so he likely wouldn't have any medical malpractice coverage. Alice would probably be off work to recover from her emotional trauma until she's cleared by a doctor. So I think there would be a workers' comp claim here for medical bills and lost time. Before we leave the library, we need to pause for just a moment. I wanted to include a feature on the podcast called Best Worst Pickup Line in each episode. While Ghostbusters is maybe one of the most quotable movies ever, and there are a ton of great one-liners, I really didn't find any pickup lines. The lines that come closest to it are just rude and obnoxious. My wife told me that if I was a woke feminist ally, I wouldn't even be talking about this. I think there's still comedy value in a truly bad pickup line, but I'm just woke enough to point out that Peter Venkman in this movie is truly a creep. The closest he comes to a normal conversation with a woman is when he says to the library ghost, Hello, I'm Peter. Where are you from? Originally. 
After the future Ghostbusters return to the university, the dean arrives and announces they're all fired, and they wind up going into business for themselves. Here I'll start to talk about a variety of issues that come up for any small business, whether you're in the business of professional paranormal investigation and elimination or something more mainstream. The first question that Ray Stance asks is the right one. Where are we going to get the money? The other two guys convince Ray to put a third mortgage on a house he inherited from his parents. They say the interest rate is 19%, which might have been the best they could get in 1982, but by 1984, rates had come down to 14% or so, which still sounds ridiculous by today's standards. Egon also said the interest for the first five years comes to $95,000. I did the math, and that means that they only borrowed something in the neighborhood of about $100,000. Frankly, I don't see how they could have bought all the stuff they bought for that amount of money. Out of that, they bought the car, built all this cool technology from scratch, bought a building, and had operating cash for a month or two. Somehow, I just don't think so. Before starting a business like this, I would want to see pro forma earnings estimates and do some thoughtful work on an operating agreement for the partnership to clarify who had rights to do what. It can save a lot of arguments with your partners later when you either start making a lot of money or you run out of money. Handshake agreements can get pretty tense when the situation changes. The sign we see later on their building does say Ghostbusters Incorporated, so they've at least taken that step to protect their personal finances by setting up a corporation. Good for them. But if Ray put up all the money, does Ray own all the shares? Or did they agree to be one-third partners because Egon knows how to do everything and Venkman is, well, I'm not sure what he brings to the table except ego and hubris that they can actually do all this stuff. They buy this run-down old firehouse. This is a real location at the corner of Moore and Varick Streets in Manhattan, although the interiors were all shot in Los Angeles. During their first visit with the realtor, Egon notes that the building's load-bearing members have serious metal fatigue and the wiring is substandard. A rundown old building like this would be tough to insure. Instead of a modern replacement cost special form policy, you might be looking at something that only insures the building for actual cash value, which takes an allowance for depreciation off the settlement and only covers a limited set of what's called named perils. Fire, lightning, explosion smoke damage, windstorm and hail, riots, civil commotion, and a handful of others. These policies are typically more expensive than insuring a new building of similar size on a better form. As we progress through the movie, we see that they go from a small sign to a much larger internally lit sign with the familiar No Ghosts logo, the circle with the line through it. I mention this because if they had a business owner's policy, those attached signs would automatically be covered, usually for a limited amount, but it'd probably be enough. On the property form, they're likely to have gotten a company to write on that old building, though. You'd have to specifically add the sign coverage. As a general rule, if you're putting up an expensive sign, it's best to check and make sure it's covered, rather than assume and be surprised after the windstorm comes through and knocks down your sign. While we're nitpicking about property coverages, let's talk about Egon. He notes to their new receptionist, Janine, that he likes to collect spores, molds, and fungus. Yuck. But also, is that collection worth anything? Does he own that collection personally? How hard would it be to replace that collection? 
if he's staying in the firehouse building as his residence, and that collection belongs to the business, it would probably be covered under business personal property. But I'm not sure how you would value it at time of loss. If you scheduled it on something more like a homeowner's form, it would be easier to cover. You just add it as a scheduled special collection for an agreed value, just like a set of stamps or a collection of precious moments figures or whatever. But that would be a fun conversation with the underwriter for Egon's collection. You want to insure what now? For how much? There's also issues of what perils it would be insured against. If these samples are required to be kept in a controlled environment, spoilage due to power loss would be your biggest concern. Spoilage is usually included for things like restaurants and grocery stores, and I've seen it included for doctor's offices for things like perishable medications and vaccines. Suffice it to say that Egon chose a very weird hobby that's also very difficult to insure. Next up in the story is Dana Barrett, played by Sigourney Weaver, who finds that she has an evil Sumerian demigod living in her icebox. She goes to the Ghostbusters for help. They take her money ask a few questions, send her back to her apartment alone with Peter Vinkman, and proceed to not solve her problem for what seems like a period of several weeks. In today's environment, she would probably have some kind of sexual harassment claim against Peter Vinkman and Ghostbusters Incorporated. After rebuffing Peter's advances, she demands that he leave, and when he doesn't, she seems to be genuinely concerned for her safety for a few minutes. Not the best business practice. But in the legal climate of that time, I don't know if she would have had much of a civil or criminal case. On the other hand, as the events of the movie progress, it becomes clear that the Ghostbusters are perfectly happy to run around catching ghosts for everyone except Dana. They have a duty to her because she's already paid them. She clearly suffers bodily injury and mental anguish, not to mention demonic possession and complete destruction of her apartment. Do the Ghostbusters have a duty to perform that has been breached? If so, do they have errors and omissions coverage? I guess I better explain what I mean. Normal liability coverages found on your home and auto policy, commercial general liability, these cover bodily injury, property damage, and what's called personal injury. Personal injury includes things like false arrest, malicious prosecution, slander, libel, invasion of privacy. So normal liability policies cover bodily injury, property damage, and personal injury due to the negligence of the insured. That means it has to be an accident. They don't cover errors or omissions, unforeseen consequences of intentional acts or failures to act, and they don't cover things like malpractice. So I think Dana would have a real claim here for failure to act which resulted in serious bodily harm to her as well as property damage. The question is whether or not the Ghostbusters would have had this coverage. I would think, given the novelty of their profession and their total lack of money, they probably didn't. Even if they wound up getting it later, it would be a claims-made style policy. That means there's a retroactive date on it, and claims for anything that happened before that date would not be defended or paid by the insurance company. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. These guys haven't even caught a ghost yet. Not until they're called to the Sedgwick Hotel late one night after reports of a disturbance on the 12th floor. Janine promises they'll be discreet, which of course they are not. In the process of capturing this ghost, they fire up their proton packs, 
which Venkman calls unlicensed nuclear accelerators. Now, this becomes important for us because there's a nuclear energy liability exclusion attached to basically every insurance policy unless you're specifically buying liability for that sort of thing. However, there's obviously liability coverage for certain things that do produce radiation. There are cell phone towers, microwave antennas, x-ray machines, and that sort of thing. So here's what I found. The way these proton packs are described, they are miniature portable cyclotrons, like a particle accelerator that produces a stream of charged particles. Sounds cool, looks cool, does a lot of damage, but it doesn't seem to meet the definition of nuclear that's in these exclusions. So I'm assuming for the purposes of this discussion that it does not produce ionizing radiation that's harmful to the human body in that way. It's more like a laser a cohesive beam of something that's otherwise basically harmless except for the fact that it's focused. So I'm assuming this damage would be covered under the general liability policy. And what a lot of damage there is. They shoot a nice housekeeper lady and they set her cart of toilet paper on fire. They blast a hotel hallway and leave scorch marks all over the place. Venkman gets slimed, which seems like maybe a worker's comp hazard to me, but doesn't seem to do him any harm. And then they go into the ballroom. There's no discussion of a contract, including a waiver or hold harmless language. Ray says, we'll take care of everything. And boy, do they. They blast the chandelier. They destroy the bar. They turn over every table in the room. They blast all the food that's set up. By failing to be discreet about it, they've potentially cost the hotel future business, which would add to the hotel's claim for financial loss. What a mess. There's also the Ghostbusters car, which is a converted 1959 Cadillac ambulance slash hearse with a lot of extra additional gear. While this vehicle is unusual, it probably wouldn't be too tough to get a commercial auto policy placed on it that covered all the extra equipment as well. You just need to make sure that you list the value of all the permanently mounted equipment in addition to the vehicle itself. Let's think for a minute about their equipment. These proton packs are expensive, one-of-a-kind items. Business property that stays within a building is covered under the normal commercial property form. But things like these proton packs and ghost traps would need to be scheduled as mobile equipment. It's not very intuitive, but these things are covered under what's called an inland marine form because the text of the form is based on the old marine cargo form that actually dates back hundreds of years to the infancy of the insurance marketplace at Lloyd's Coffee Shop in London. It's the same kind of form that you would use to cover something like a bobcat or a backhoe against theft, vandalism, trees falling on it, whatever. There's also a product's liability exposure from the proton packs and the traps. For most of the things we buy for a business, we're more concerned about what happens if we misuse the item, like a power saw, for instance. You're more worried about cutting through the wrong thing. But what about the manufacturer? What if there's a design flaw in the saw that causes some guard to come loose and cut people's fingers off? What if there's a problem in your manufacturing process that causes all the saws to catch on fire? What if you need to do a recall? These concerns don't come up directly in the movie, but Venkman makes a reference to eventual franchising of the Ghostbusters business model, and they would have a huge exposure for these products. Back to the ballroom for just a minute. 
There's poor Mrs. Van Houten, who had planned to have her charity event in the ballroom that evening. She might have had an event cancellation policy. I've written these for big hotel events before, and they come in pretty handy. Hotel contracts for big events are usually very one-sided in favor of the hotel. You're required to pay for a certain number of rooms, a certain minimum charge for food, and unless it's the hotel's fault that they can't hold your event, you are responsible for those charges, even if you have to cancel due to circumstances beyond your control. That's what the event cancellation policy addresses. It can be written to cover those costs for a very reasonable premium, paying for rescheduling the event another time or somewhere else if needed. It's great to have for conferences and weddings. Moving on with the rest of the film, let's start with the party at Lewis Tully's apartment across from Dana's place. He wanders around the room chatting with his guests, noting that he is writing the whole thing off as a business expense, and that's why he invited clients instead of friends. Real nice. Makes you feel really loved to be told that you're not actually his friend. Then Ted and Annette Fleming walk in, and he tells everyone in the room their entire financial history. That's probably a breach of privacy for a tax preparer. Let's assume that doesn't turn into a claim, though, because really, if you hired this guy to do your taxes, what did you expect? The thing about taking the party as a business expense, though, that does turn into a big problem when the terror dog gets loose, tearing up the apartment and sending people running for their lives. One assumes that there were some injuries, but Lewis's homeowner's policy has a business exclusion. Uh-oh. No coverage for premises liability for the folks that got hurt. There probably is coverage for the property damage to his own stuff, though. Lewis doesn't care very much at the moment because he's been possessed by the terror dog and he's now a minion of Gozer, as is his neighbor Dana Barrett. The Ghostbusters, meanwhile, have hired a new employee, Winston Zettimore. I love this character for a variety of reasons, but mostly because he gets to deliver the line, tell him about the Twinkie, after Egon gives his little spiel about the normal amount of psychokinetic energy versus what they're seeing at that time. The next major development is the supernatural explosion of Ghostbusters headquarters that is caused when the EPA and Con Ed shut off power to the protection grid that houses all the captured ghosts. This appears to do significant damage to the old firehouse building. I've heard arguments both ways on this from other folks in the industry. Would it be covered? Would it not be covered? Does it depend on what kind of form was it used? Let's think about this. I don't think it would be covered under equipment breakdown or a boiler and machinery type form because the equipment didn't fail. It was shut off. Were the Ghostbusters negligent? Not really. They were jerks to the federal government, which is not a great business practice. Would it be covered under explosion on the basic perils form? Maybe. Would it be covered under the special form? Probably. But ultimately, I think what they would do is they'd get a lawyer and file a counterclaim against the EPA's lawsuit, stating that the EPA was responsible for the damages under the Federal Tort Claims Act. You could also make an argument that the ultimate cause of the entire series of events in the movie was the designer of Dana's building at 55 Central Park West, Mr. Evo Shandor. The Ghostbusters go into some detail on this, saying things like, It's not the girl, Peter, it's the building. 
and the entire building was designed as an antenna for focusing spiritual turbulence. But good luck with that argument against a judge. After the protection grid is shut off, all of New York is awash in an epidemic of supernatural problems. The walls in the 53rd precinct are bleeding. Hard-boiled police captains are describing forms of combustion they've never seen before. Ghosts are eating hot dogs and driving cabs and every other dang thing. Mass hysteria. One can assume that after the heat dies down from this, there would be a class-action lawsuit, and the Ghostbusters are the natural target because their building exploded, seemingly the cause of it all. So this thing would be tied up in court for years, and the only ones who would win would be the lawyers. Let's assume from this point out that if the Ghostbusters had any aggregate limit left on their general liability policy, it's gone. The insurance carrier wrote a check for what was left of the policy limits, and they went home. The Ghostbusters are arrested and tossed in jail until the mayor sends for them. By the way, that's a young Reginald Bell Johnson, later to appear in Die Hard and Family Matters, who lets them out of their cell. They make their case, and the mayor listens to them. What do you need from me, he asks. Well, the first thing I'd ask for is a complete waiver of any and all liability that might result from my actions in defense of the city. Because from here on out, the damage starts to get really extreme. You've got injuries from pieces of the building falling on people during the battle. You've got all the injuries and mental trauma from seeing a hundred-foot marshmallow man running around the city destroying things. And when they cross the streams to close the dimensional gateway and save everybody, it appears to cause a large explosion that wrecks the top few floors of this building and causes a fireball about a thousand feet across. One thing I am sure about, when the marshmallow man steps on the Holy Trinity Lutheran Church just to the south of that building, that appears to set the building on fire. One rule is constant in property insurance. Fire is always covered. My gosh, let's run the numbers all the way back to the beginning. The librarian's workers' comp claim, let's call that 25000 including the lost time wages. The two students that Venkman harassed, let's say that Columbia University settled those for a total of $60,000. Dana Barrett's failure to act lawsuit against the Ghostbusters. For the sake of this podcast, let's assume there was actually insurance for this. Between her property damage, her bodily injury, her pain and suffering, her mental anguish over the whole episode that could have been prevented if Venkman hadn't been more interested in getting in her pants. She could sue for a million five in a Manhattan court and win with not a lot of effort, I'd bet. The Ghostbusters building? Let's say that would have been 500000 if it was properly insured, but it was on an ACV form, so it's only going to be paid out at about 200000 The partygoers all have claims, but I don't think the insurance company would pay that loss due to the business exclusion on Lewis's policy. So that's a zero as far as insured losses go, but Mr. Tully might still have some judgments against him. I figure the damage to the hotel is about a quarter million dollars between the damage to the ballroom and all the other stuff. If you include the resulting loss of revenue, it might be 400000 Mrs. Van Houten's event cancellation policy, let's call that about 35000 
I have no idea how the class action for the damage from shutting off the protection grid would get handled in the courts, but let's call that a million-dollar loss under the general liability policy, regardless of how it might ultimately get treated. That's the occurrence limit under most business policies, unless you've purchased an umbrella or excess coverage. Let's say that a few people got hurt when pieces of building fell on them, but their injuries were not that serious because the chunks were small or they were glancing blows or whatever. 500000 The church isn't seriously damaged because the fire trucks are right there, but damage to old buildings like that is still expensive to repair. 500000 Then there's damage to the apartment building itself. The 55 Central Park West Co-op had that building insured for about $150 a square foot replacement cost, and it's about 25 stories at an average of about 10,000 square feet per floor. It's a big building. Total valuation is $37.5 million. Let's say it's 40% damaged, 20% by fire and explosion, and another 20% from smoke and other things like sprinkler leakage. That's a $15 million claim, less maybe a $100,000 deductible. Probably what would happen is the insurance company would pay out based on the depreciated value, and they would make additional payments as repairs were actually done to bring the final settlement up to the full replacement cost. The insurer might try to subrogate that loss back to the Ghostbusters or the city or whoever else they could think of, but ultimately I think they're on the hook for it. And finally, one claim I didn't discuss earlier, the PR disaster suffered by the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Corporation. This company is associated with one of the most traumatic events in New York City's history up to this point in time. They're owned by a huge agricultural conglomerate, though, that has a $5 million insurance policy covering their brands. That policy pays out $3 million for a bunch of advertising grief counselors, and whatever else the public relations firm can come up with to save this brand's reputation. But ultimately, they decide to change their name. How long has it been since you saw Stay Puffed Marshmallows on the shelf? I can't even remember. All told, there were $31,170,000 in insured losses, and that's just what we saw. Dear listener, we finally brought home episode number two of Insurable Interest. If you liked it, please subscribe and tell your friends. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps us as we're trying to build an audience. If you have suggestions for movies or TV shows I should address, or questions you'd like to ask, please let me know. You can find us pretty much everywhere. Insurable Eye on Twitter, Insurable Eye on Facebook, InsurableEye.com on the web. If you didn't like it, or if you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know that too. Drop me a line at hey, H-E-Y, at insurableeye.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 636-465-9588. Please let me know in your message whether it's okay to play your question on the next episode. Insurable Interest is a production of Custom Insurance Services, the Missouri insurance agency where I work. The show is written, recorded, and edited by me in the Sublimit Studio. Our theme music is by RAC, the Remix Artist Collective, used under a Creative Commons license, as is all of the music and sound effects in the show. 
There are links in the show notes to specific tracks and the artists who created them. My name is Tony Becker. On our next episode, we'll talk about Double Indemnity. It should drop on March 22nd. Until then, be safe. Be safe.